Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through Podcast. I am your host, Damian Sassauer, and today we are joined by Mr. Kaushik Rudra, Managing Director and Global Head of Fixed Income Research at Standard Chartered Bank in Singapore. A real privilege to have you here, Kaushik. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Damian, real pleasure to be with you. You know, I have a lot of time for you. I mean, obviously, follow your work a lot. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Kashik, I mean, let's get right into it. I mean, double tops in the dollar and the U.S. 10-year yield are fueling a vicious rally in risk assets. My question for you is, is this move structurally bullish for emerging market investors? Is this the move we've been waiting for? Has the U.S. 10-year peaked? And perhaps more importantly, how long is the runway for dollar weakness to continue? Yeah, I think this is a very important topic, Uh I feel that you know I there is there was an extreme level of bearishness in the market. Uh, positioning was also very skewed in favor of sort of the dollar, uh, short U.S. Treasuries, uh, obviously short risk assets as well. And what we've seen, uh, you know, I think the market was quite desperate to be honest for some sort of a some sort of data, some sort of you know something that they could latch onto, which allows them to pivot, or at least talk of the pivot game a little bit. Now, perhaps it's too soon to say that you know we are definitely turned the corner uh, for 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 you know for, for some of these uh, you know U.S. Treasury or the dollar, but certainly I think near term because of the amount of bearishness, the amount of cash that's sitting on the sidelines, I think we could have uh, you know a bit more of uh, momentum in this rally, right? Uh, I think risk assets, credit spreads, all have been beaten up, and we've seen high yield obviously you know perform pretty strongly relative to the IG sector. And that's sort of a symptomatic of risk-taking behavior right now, or at least short-covering behavior that you know, we expect to see for the, for the time being. But when we think about from a medium-term perspective, I think we'll need to see more data, more evidence to suggest that the you know, inflation story is genuinely turning. Uh, the Fed will want to see that. And I think the Fed is, is probably in no position to start pausing at this point. They may slow down the rate hikes, and we are expecting... 50 basis points in December, another 25 basis points next year. So we're still talking about 475, which is you know, quite a substantial rate hike already, uh, which clearly will have its own implications for emerging markets. I'm sure we'll talk about that in more detail. The other thing is, uh, you know, the other you know, sort of element to this risk rally has been China, right? I mean, I think announcements that uh, late last week on, you know, perhaps relaxation on the COVID stance, real estate related policies, you know, the market's been desperate for these sort of announcements for some time. And clearly China has been uh, boosted uh, from a market standpoint with these announcements. And again, a lot to be seen and we can talk more about it, but I think certainly the market was desperate uh, for some announcements of these kinds and it sort of latched onto it. And for the time being, it's all, all, all sort of, you know, all sort of green signals, right, for the market. Well, Kashik, you mentioned EM high yield just this month alone. EM high yields up, you know, U.S. dollar high yield 5% on the month. I mean, let's crystallize some of those things you just talked about, right? I mean, um, 
The HSCEI is up 27% month to date. I was just looking at Country Garden, which, as we all know, is one of the largest issuers, uh, dollar issuers of EM debt out of China, private property owner, huge bellwether for the market. Cogard dollar debt tripled in value month to date. It was it doubled in value on uh, on Monday the 14th alone. I mean, just, you know, to me, that reeks of light positioning of, you know, technicals of, of, of it, it doesn't to me seem you know fundamental in nature but nevertheless it wasn't a knife fight now was it at the she biden meeting this new 16 point plan is sort of a step in the right direction how should investors in the current environment really approach china given all that's gone on over the better part of the last two to three years no i think right now obviously the markets reacted pretty strongly to the, these announcements uh, but if you take a step back, I mean, even on the sort of relaxation of the COVID stance, uh, I think it is going to be a gradual reopening of the of the country, right? I, I think yeah. there is demographics, there is vaccinations to deal with, uh, there is the winter coming ahead. Obviously, there is a whole you know shift in terms of sort of the cabinet movement that will happen between now and March of next year. We, we expect a more meaningful reopening only starting in March and perhaps the impact of this will really be felt in the second half of next year. So I think the market is, uh, you know, probably jumping ahead a little bit uh, on, on the positive side with respect to these announcements. But I think uh, we will see the opening. I think this is the signaling has been done. and But the more meaningful sort of impact will really be felt later. On the real estate announcements, and again, these are pretty significant because uh, mm-hmm. they are starting to support, uh, you know, providing these developers with funding uh, they're providing different you know assist you know, assistance measures to these developers so that you know i think it was a little bit of a life and death story for a lot of these and i clearly the market was pricing them at severely distressed levels yeah. uh, which was right given where uh, what we were seeing given the land sales that we've seen given the sort of uh, you know property sales that we've seen all of these suggest that those were right numbers now that the government has announced some uh, degree of support to developers, which was missing piece all this while, what they had provided was uh, things to boost demand. Now, demand is not necessarily going to get boosted unless the sector is viable. And I think that is what we have started seeing uh, in, in the measures that we've seen in the last you know few days. And that should help the sector. Now, I'm not saying all of the developers will survive. All of the sectors... I think we clearly will see the sector shrink quite dramatically. We've seen investors move out of this sector uh, in, in quite large droves. Uh, so that that damage is done. Uh, but I think for now, some there will be survivors. There'll be some of the bigger companies, state-owned companies, et cetera, which will obviously be beneficiaries of what we will see going forward. But for the time being, I think uh, you know it's probably the right thing. I think you will see a little bit of a rally, but clearly there is a lot of dust that needs to settle before we can see the clearer picture in this space. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how the market digests that Cogard uh, equity share placement in Hong Kong in a few weeks' time. I mean, for me, it's, look, I mean, it's a sea of green out there, right? I mean, this month especially, a sea of green. I mean, I can't believe I'm even saying those words. But more importantly, out along the frontier, I'm talking, you know, if you were just to look at this month's, you know, big winners, I mean, it's Ukraine, it's Ethiopia, it's Nigeria, it's Belarus, right? I mean, these, you know out of favor frontier market economies operating in EM high yield. I mean, those are your double digit gains this month. You know, again, is this a function of 
you know, light positioning, you know, secondary market liquidity, uh, or is there fundamental strength in some of these issuers? Do we believe that some of the IMF support that's been, you know, dallied about recently is going to actually have an impact on their economies that some of the monetary and fiscal moves they've made, if it means, you know, tightening financial conditions domestically or easing them, it's irregardless, you know, are markets convinced or getting more comfortable with some of these issuers from an investment standpoint? No, I think they've had a very strong run in the last few days. I mean, I, I would argue that they've you know rallied way more than I would have expected them to based on the announcements that we've seen so far or, or the events that, that have transpired so far. Uh, I mean, you know, I've been in the market for a very long period of time now. And, uh, you know, I, I just... I'm not even going back to where I started, but even going back to 2008, when Lehman, uh, you know, went down, there were a handful of African issuers in the market. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 15 years since uh, or 14 years since we've had expanded balance sheets by various central banks. We've had interest rates which have been extremely low, which have allowed, uh, you know, a lot of issuers, uh, particularly the high yield segment of the EM uh, space, you know, access markets uh, quite significantly. Now, of course, with U.S. interest rates at 4% uh, and, you know, a Fed which is going to tighten its balance sheet and you'll probably have Bank of England, obviously Bank of England is already doing so. You could have ECB doing so sometime next year. Uh, that means this excess liquidity in the context of higher DM rates will make it very hard for some of these issuers to reaccess markets. And that, that really creates a challenge. I mean, I think the IMF will obviously have to step in and provide support to some of these countries. Uh, you'll probably have other multilaterals come in and support. But I was joking about this, uh, you know, a couple of days back. I'm thinking I started off as a Brady Bond strategist many years back. Maybe Brady Bonds are going to come back in some form because you <laughs> need, you know, some sort of principal guarantee, perhaps from a market access standpoint for some of these countries to be able to reaccess markets. So I think that's that's going to be a tough uh, issue for a lot of these issuers. They have rallied, yes, but I think the fundamental situation really hasn't changed that much, and there's still going to be a difficult, you know, few years ahead. We have a wall of maturity coming up in the next two three years. I think that that will create some financing issues for a lot of these countries, a lot of companies as well in the high yield space. So I think there's there's going to be a real challenge for EM high yield to sort of combat this uh, new dynamic, new mathematics that they face in front of them. <clears throat> yeah, no, exactly. And look, I mean, we all know EM public debt, <clears throat> excuse me, has surged to 66% from 54% just in 2019. And you're right, a lot of that is on the books of these low quality issuers. And if there's anything they can do in terms of credit enhancement and sort of you know, MEGA multilateral uh, investment guarantee association, you know, us, you know, if there's anything we can do or anything the markets can do, you know, I think, I think we're all ears at this point, right? Because I mean, that's a lot of debt that needs to kind of get serviced and, you know, at higher interest rates and with currencies as weak as they are, it's going to be a real big challenge. You know, talk to me about the Fed, you know, I mean, it's taken a while here, you know, but do you really believe, or do you think there's a way, I mean, is the Fed put truly dead? You know, will the Fed um, never again choose to backstop asset prices? You know, I mean, ha can the Fed actually engineer a soft landing or, in your opinion, Kaushik, has that ship sailed? I think it's it's hard to say whether we can, you know, orchestrate a soft landing. I think the real impact of the monetary policy is going to you know, play out over the next 12 months. 
uh, we'll really get a better sense. Already we are starting to see some high frequency data suggests that the economy is slowing down. We do expect a recession next year. Uh, so I think, you know, clearly I think there is slowdown ahead. The question is, do we get a deep recession or we just get a, you know, a, you know sort of a normal you know, recession, which is perhaps not going to be that damaging. The U.S. Is, has clearly started from a very strong position and that helps. Uh, but I think what, what lies ahead is very much, uh, you know, going to play out over the next 12 months. I think it's very hard to, you know, have a crystal ball and say how deep that recession is going to be. Now, I think as far as the Fed is concerned, uh, I don't necessarily think that the Fed put is gone. I think for the time being, clearly the, you know, Fed is very focused on inflation, rightfully so. I think there is a pretty large demand aspect to inflation in, in the US, I mean, more so in, than, than the other parts of the world. If I think about Europe, even Christine Lagarde said the other day, I think she believes uh, Europe's inflation is about 40% demand, 60% supply driven. And if I think about emerging markets, it's probably more 70, 80% mm. uh, supply driven rather than demand driven. So EM is in a different position, but US does have a bigger demand based inflation problem. And I think the Fed is very focused on trying to sort of, you know, push that lower through, you know, obviously pushing demand lower. Now, let, I mean, I think from, you know, getting back to your question about whether the Fed put is still in place, I think once we get past this situation, I think the Fed will probably operate with a slightly different, you know, uh, bias. But even now, I, one thing I would, would definitely highlight is although the Fed is very focused and obviously the Fed will continue to be focused on inflation, what happened in the UK uh, a month back definitely gets into the reaction function of central banks, whether they want to talk about it or not. They have, you know, obviously they will not want to give up the optionality. They will probably want to focus on inflation. They want to signal that to the market. But to a large extent, that would have, you know, in some form or the other would have factored into market, you know, the Fed's reaction function, other central banks' reaction function. And that clearly will mean that the the markets, uh, sorry, the central banks and the Fed itself would be a little bit more sensitive to potential accidents uh, on the financial market side. Interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, Haushik, EM policy rates are now well above pre-pandemic levels. We just saw the activity data out of China. Um, it was worse than expected, obviously. I mean, my question for you is, is it too early to begin receiving on the front end of EM local markets? I mean, we know Asian central banks have been pumping the brakes on inflation, but which ones are furthest along, in your opinion, in the tightening cycle? You know, you've just been to Seoul, you've just been to India. I mean, talk to us about the Philippines, about Indonesia. I mean, is it too early to start thinking about receiving positions in Asia or is this about the right time? Again, I think when we think about from an EM perspective, uh, and I'll focus my, my comments more on Asia, but I think clearly from our standpoint, LATAM obviously has done more uh, with respect to the rate hiking cycle. And, and that's why you are seeing investors obviously move in that direction. Brazil, Mexico, Mexico in particular, uh, you know, clearly is has been a beneficiary of some of those flows. As far as Asia is concerned, there's a wide divergence in the way Asian central banks have uh, sort of approached this. Korea, Bank of Korea was one of the first central banks in the region to start hiking rates. It was very proactive. They did have a housing uh, sort of, you know, really hot a housing market that they needed to deal with. You know, I think 
Korea has done enough in terms of addressing its inflation and its sort of housing market situation. Mm-hmm. You're starting to see inflation having peaked. It's starting to come down. Growth obviously is coming off. Uh, housing market is starting to show, show some signs of uh, fragility. Uh, clearly, I think if if it was for, you know left on Korea alone, I think Bank of Korea would have stopped by now. Uh, but unfortunately, for a lot of central banks, uh, you have to look at financial stability considerations as well. And there, yeah. with the Fed moving so much and, and markets like Korea, which are very linked to the U.S., uh, will have to keep lockstep with, with the Fed in, in trying to sort of keep the gap from not blowing up too much. Uh, because if, if the gap is too large, you risk, obviously, capital outflow. So I think that is the quandary or the sort of problem that Korea finds itself in where they have to keep hiking perhaps at a slower pace than the Fed to sort of keep up and ensure that you don't get capital outflows. But at the same time, you risk, you know, damaging your own economy, which is already now starting to show signs of slowdown. Now, when I look at other central banks in the region, when I look at Indonesia, I look at India, uh, you know, and, you know Malaysia, etc. I think they're all starting to see a little bit of a moderation in inflation. So they actually started off much later in in the whole rate hiking cycle. And I think even with having done a lot less than what the Fed has done, uh, they're perhaps at a point where they're very close to the end of the rate cycle, rate hiking cycle. So, you know, a lot of these central banks perhaps need to do move two more times, 25 basis points each, nothing like what the Fed is doing. And perhaps because it's largely a demand, or sorry, supply-driven inflation story here, you are getting to that point where the central banks will start, you know, slowing down the pace of hikes, or they may actually completely pause. Now, if that's the case, at some then I think at some point you'll start seeing more interest come back into these markets. But I think still it's a little premature to think about these markets from a receiving standpoint, primarily because they have a little bit more to do. I think markets where we think they have done more, one is Korea. Uh, obviously, Korea has its other issues, but we do have a little bit of a, you know, we think that, you know, if you look at the three-year part of the curve, it's obviously starting to price in rate cuts ahead. So the three stents could steepen, but it's an interesting country uh, in, from an inflation dynamic standpoint and perhaps an interesting market where uh, it, it would it will have a bias to receive. Similarly, we'll have a bias to receive in a market like Singapore. Uh, and then Thailand, where they're actually going to move very slowly, although I, I think the, uh, you know, our recommendation there would be sort of looking at the 10-year space in Thailand versus the U.S. Treasury uh, on a relative basis. And, you know, again, uh, more, I guess, the low beta markets of Asia, the high beta markets like uh, India, Indonesia, etc., I think we'd want to wait for the rate hike cycle to be done before uh, and perhaps a little bit more adjustment to take place in the yields before those markets become, you know, very interesting from a from a you know pure long standpoint. So I mean, Kashik, I have to just ask you know, your global head of fixed income research at Standard Chartered, you know, many have been arguing for the death of the sixty forty portfolio, right? I mean, now we're in a very different place. Um, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, what are your thoughts? on the fixed income allocation within a broader diversified investment portfolio. You know, how 
are investors in your uh, in your region thinking about that? Obviously, you know, we think of things from the perspective of a dollar based investor. I'm sure you do as well. But, you know, just, you know, from a portfolio allocation perspective, you know, the bonds offer value at current levels and which sectors within the fixed income market look most attractive to you. And perhaps more importantly, which fixed income assets can protect portfolios during periods of distress? And that's a loaded question, I know. But, you know, obviously bonds are supposed to be the great diversifier and they clearly haven't acted as such. They're not being they're not really the ballast for a balanced portfolio that you've seen in years past. Is that is that poised to persist or, 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 or can we expect it, uh, you know, a bit of normalization on that front? No, listen, I think periods like this do shake our sort of beliefs in, in some of these, uh, you know, longer term held and, uh, you know, I think sort of thesis on how a portfolio should be designed. And I think these will be examined from time to time when you're when you have such high level of volatility in the treasury market. I think all, you know, fixed income markets automatically, obviously, which are sort of price uh, takers rather than price setters, I think they are they're at the mercy of what's happening in the treasury space. So I think clearly, I think that's a challenge. Uh, and that's this has clearly distorted a lot of the thought process near term. But I think as we settle down, we look at from a medium term perspective, uh, we do expect that sort of, you know, you know, 60, 40 thing to sort of, in some form, I mean, it could be a little bit higher, a little bit lower, but I think roughly we, we get back to those sort of levels. I think there could be a short term withdrawal from emerging markets uh, when i think about em i mean i think em is much more of a legitimate asset class now than it was back in 2008 so mm-hmm. it it definitely has a position in people's portfolios uh, there's you know from time to time people question whether the em local currency debt market is even an asset class or is just a you know sort of you're supposed to go long this asset class only when the dollar trades down. So I think there are <laughs> questions people ask about these various asset classes. I think there is a place. Uh, and over time, I think these continue to offer, uh, you know, decent returns. Obviously, the cycles are very different from what you see in the DM space in these markets. So you have to play it accordingly. Near term, you could have some of the EM high yield market shrink on a relative basis because of things that we spoke about earlier. Uh, you know, in terms of refinancing and challenges that that lie ahead. But from a medium term perspective, I think people are still under allocated to emerging markets and there is scope to add uh, to EM. You know, for when I think about global pension funds, they're still under allocated to emerging markets. So, you know, if I want to sort of think about from a medium term perspective, I want to leave leave on a positive note. I think there is more more to do in EM and there's definitely more scope to add in the EM space. Well, Kaushik, we must have you back on and talk about the vagrancies of funding currency diversification because, you know, my audience is well-versed in that topic. And the fact is, as you rightly point out, in dollar terms, most of the emerging market local debt universe is down year to date. But if you were to fund in pounds or perhaps even Japanese yen, <clears throat> you've made quite a bit of money this week, uh, this year. Sorry. Um, Kaushik, thank you for sharing your thoughts and your views with us here today. And uh, and thank you to our audience of ever-enduring, uh, always committed EM enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers.